this morning, if you brought your copy of God's Word, open to Matthew chapter 12. We're going to finish a, long, a larger section that um, deals with Sabbath questions. In chapter 12, verse 1 is where we began this. We finished last week. We did two parts, uh, the first part, and then the second part finished there in verse 14. And we're picking up this morning in verse 15. Now, before I get started there, I want to just ask a quick question um, of us. How many, um, how many Jewish people do we have in our congregation this morning? Okay, I see one. Which means that the rest of us are what? That's right. Gentiles. Now, it might be a little crude if I were to say something like Gentile dogs, right? I mean, that might be a little on the harsh side since it's, we're, that's, that's us. We're kind of all in the family on this, right? Well, in our passage this morning, we're going to see that God's plan all along was for the salvation of Gentiles and not just those of Jewish ethnicity. And in a unique way, it seems that Matthew is, having used the Sabbath regulations that the Jews utilized uh, wrongly, they made traditions of men out of Sabbath day observance, and um, they made it to where uh, man served the Sabbath, but God's intention was that uh, the Sabbath was for man, and it was a day of rest, a day of rest from your labors. And... Um, Matthew is going to use the principle that he surfaces, that Jesus surfaced there, that had they understood what God was speaking in Hosea 6.6, 6, that God desires compassion and not sacrifice. He's going to say, had you rightly understood that, you would have not abused Sabbath day uh, at rest and, and what God intended and purposed for it to be. But not only that, had you understood the, the, the heart of God, that he is a God of compassion, you also wouldn't have been abusive to those Gentile dogs, and you would have understood that God came to save the likes of them too. And all the anim animus and animosity that there was between the Jews and the Gentiles, the Samaritans, anybody who was not of Jewish ethnicity was considered to be outside, unclean. And um, Matthew, it seems for the first time, it's going to make a big movement in the direction here in chapter 12, um, identifying and showing that Christ came for all, Gentiles especially. Uh, unfortunately, um, in the seminary, the beautiful seminary that I went to, Dallas Seminary, it was founded by some that hold to what I refer to as a very classic dispensational understanding of how to interpret scriptures. And that classic dispensationalism um, would have us believe, and it, it impacted a lot of people through the Schofield Study Bible, as well as some other things. But one of the things that really got popularized was the idea that had the Jewish nation, and perhaps some of you have heard of this, that when Jesus came, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Had the Jewish nation actually accepted Christ as Messiah, 
and not rejected him, had they actually received him, that Jesus would have then established an earthly kingdom for the Jewish nation and fulfilled all those yet unfulfilled promises that the Old Testament speaks of. Is anybody to a certain degree familiar with that? But since they didn't receive him and they rejected him, plan B kicked in and God turned to the Gentiles. I, I heard that whenever I was at the seminary and was taught that that, that model, a very classic dispensational model, and it kind of made us Gentile dogs kind of like a plan B option that had this really taken place and this wouldn't have even had to have happened. But since they did reject and us Gentiles, we get to be a part of Christ's kingdom as well. Now, the reason that we Gentiles get grafted into Christ, the Jewish Messiah, wasn't because God had a plan B. It's because God had a plan A, and in God's plan A from all along, from before the foundations of the world, yes, he was a God to the Jewish nation, and he established them as a nation amongst all the nations to be like a light shining on a hill that they would come to recognize that there's something unique about Yahweh, and as, as Yahweh God moved that nation from one place to another and was faithful to them in keeping with his covenant that he made to Abraham, it was, a, it, it was intended to be a, 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 a covenant and a people that was set apart from all the other people on the earth, and they were. But God never intended that for all time that the Gentiles would be excluded, and thus the beautiful new covenant in Christ, right? The, the beautiful new covenant in Christ. And Matthew makes a big move in this direction that for the first time in his gospel. So this is a little bit more of educational perhaps more than applicational for us this morning okay now there's a little bit of application perhaps we're going to see towards the end of Matthew's use of Isaiah 42 whenever the way that he uses Isaiah 42 but really what that is intended to do is to help us understand in a very significant and palpable way the compassion of God the very thing that they miss with regard to Sabbath day regulation Matthew's going to extend on their misunderstanding of compassion and the compassionate heart of God with regard to the enfolding of us Gentiles into the family of God. Let's notice how he does this. Watch. Look at Matthew. Well, actually, I was going to show you one passage before we did that because you were probably saying to yourself, well, maybe I haven't heard of that, and I jumped right past that. But here's one proof text, by the way, of use where someone might have wrongly assumed that God came for the Gentiles, I mean for the, for Israel, the nation of Israel exclusively to the Gentiles. We, we, we've already looked at this in Matthew 10. I just wanted to point this out. The 12 Jesus sent out after instructing them, do not go in the way of the Gentiles. You see that? Do not go to the Gentiles. Do not go into the city of the Samaritans. Rather go to, rather, rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And so you take a passage like this and perhaps a few other passages that may seem similar to this and you can wrongly build a theology that says that had the nation of Israel accepted Christ, he would have inaugurated the, the kingdom and plan B of then turning to the Gentiles, the Samaritans and such, would not have taken place. This is an example of a proof text on how they get there. And though it's well-intentioned, it's biblically inaccurate. Now, let me show you how Matthew does this for us this morning, looking at chapter 12, 
beginning in verse 15. But Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there. Many followed him, and he healed them all and warned them not to tell who he was. This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. So we see here in verse 17 that this entire Sabbath issue that Jesus had with the Pharisees, and had they understood compassion correctly, they would not have been abusing people through their man-made traditions. Matthew here strategically is going to use this Sabbath situation with the Pharisees to purposely show that what is happening here was by way of fulfillment, verse 17, of what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. So he's making a connection point. You see that? He's making a connection point to what just took place, their misunderstanding of the Sabbath and why, to something that happened as a means of fulfillment with the prophet Isaiah. And what we know uh, in that previous context is that Jesus exposed their Sabbath traditions for being what they were. They were traditions of men. They were unscriptural. They were hard-hearted, and they were lacking compassion. This is why in verse 14 uh, it stated that after the, the interaction with the Pharisees that they conspired to do what? Well, they conspired amongst themselves on how they would destroy Jesus because Jesus, in essence, just kind of rocked their world. He exposed them for being the blind shepherds that they truly were yet again, which is why in verse 15 it tells us that Jesus, being aware of this, so this is flowing out of that context, Jesus, aware of this, aware of the fact that they were seeking to destroy him. Now, some of us may have a question with regard to that. Was this one of those situations where Jesus was um, using his omniscience and through knowing all things because he's God, had an understanding through his divine attribute that they were seeking to kill him? Or was this uh, just by way of his natural intuition, having just demolished this entire Jewish Sabbath regulation right before their eyes and failing them with one solid word? Uh, he immediately, without conscious reasoning, it's sometimes what we refer to as having the ability to read a room, have you, been ever, ever, have you ever been in a situation where you need to read the room, and sometimes people read the room incorrectly? Perhaps Jesus is able to read the room correctly and knew that he needed to remove himself from that place quickly. Now, in looking at this passage, it made me think of a song that probably most of you are familiar with, um, which, by the way, this situation predates this song by just a couple thousand years. Uh, Kenny Rogers and the Gambler. Is anybody there? Um, um, it captures the sentiment well. Um, you know how it goes. You, you've got to know when to hold them, know when to fold them, and then what's it say? Know when to. You got to know when to walk away, and you got to know when to run. Um, that's the essence of what Jesus did in verse 15. He knew it was time to walk away. And perhaps he had a little scoot to his walk. It was close to a run. I don't know. It doesn't say. But it seems like this is probably what Jesus was up to. Which, by the way, Jesus, this wasn't the first time that Jesus had instructed his disciples on the art of knowing when to walk away and knowing when to run, was it? 
in Matthew 10, 14, when we were there in chapter 10, whoever does not receive you, so Jesus sent his disciples out to preach the, the, the gospel of the kingdom that was at hand. Whoever does not receive you nor heed your words as you go out of that house or that city, shake the dust off your feet. In other words, know when to walk away. And on some occasions, you might need to run. Uh, Jesus didn't stay one second longer than needed, and he didn't feel compelled to stay longer for evangelical purposes, for witnessing purposes. He didn't find the need to kind of set camp and just to hunker down and to kind of prove them doubly wrong on their usage of Sabbath day regulations. He knew when to walk away. He read the room. But did you notice whenever he left what the scripture says? Let me see if I have that passage again. Where were we? Yep, that's the same one. Aware of this, he withdrew himself. He walked away. But this part right here, many followed him. So as Jesus is leaving the situation where he went into the tabernacle and he performed a miracle on the Sabbath and he healed the man that had the withered hand and those Pharisees, because he violated Sabbath day regulations, uh, sought all the more of how they could destroy him. He withdrew from there and it says that many followed after him upon his departure. And like I've said to you before, um, the miracle worker's job is never done, right? I mean, if you really have the, the gift like Jesus had and like his, his apostles had, the miracle worker's job is never done. People will be coming after you constantly if you have the ability to do what Jesus has been doing. And it says right there, notice again at the end of verse 15, not only did they follow him, what? And he healed them all. Jesus didn't just run and leave. He, he left an occasion that wasn't a good setting for him. He leaves that setting. And all of these, it doesn't tell us how many there were that followed him, but probably there were several in the tens or maybe hundreds, perhaps, that are following him everywhere he goes. Jesus took the time to sign all their autographs. He slowed down. He recognized the need of man, and he healed them all. How long would that have taken? I don't know. Jesus purposely went out of his way because of the heartache and the brokenness of man to heal them all. And more than likely, I think it's fair to say, it's very fair to say that Jesus was healing people who were not Christ's followers. He was healing, we would say, non-believers. He wasn't just healing the believers exclusively. He was healing all of them, as many as followed him. And more than likely, there was a large number of them who did not know anything about Jesus other than the fact that he was the miracle worker. And when we get to the end of this passage, I think it's going to say a lot with regard to that perspective that Jesus brought to them with regard to the Sabbath. And had they understood the heart of God, that he, had a, that he desires compassion and not sacrifice. That what God desires for the shepherds of the sheep of his people is a heart of compassion for people. To slow down long enough to actually know people. To look them in their eyes. To try to know their names. To understand their hurt, their pain, their frustration. Try to walk a mile in their shoes. Had they understood that, 
they, would, they wouldn't have been blind shepherds. They would have been good shepherds like Jesus, who was the great shepherd who came for his sheep. And it's this issue of compassion and how the heart of God is moved with compassion for his people that ultimately is Jesus' end game in this conversation over Sabbath regulations that Matthew then transitions into showing how it's also the heart of God to have compassion for a multitude of people, even Gentile people. Notice verse 17. This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. So all of this that took place this direction has an application for what Isaiah the prophet said that we're about to see. Now again, I want to point out one last thing before we move forward there into verse 18. Notice verse 16. See what it says right there? He healed them all and what? He warned them. He didn't just kind of casually tell them. Warned is a pretty significant verb that indicates a sense of forcefulness. He warned them not to tell who he was. Here again, we have one of those seemingly strange statements of Jesus where after healing people, he asked them not to reveal who he was or who had done this to them, or in this case, not to tell others who he was, which we saw clearly back in chapter 12, verse 8. Remember, in, uh, that's chapter 12, verse 12. Where's my verse 8? I don't have a verse 8. Yeah, back in chapter 12, verse 8, I missed a slide. You have your Bibles open. For the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. So what did we see there? Jesus clearly telling them who he was. So he says, he warned them not to tell who he was. He had told them who he was. In this same context, um, there in verse 8, the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. This title that Jesus took to himself, the Son of Man, was unequivocally known in the Jewish community as the one who would be the promised Messiah who was to come, the promised Savior of Israel. Listen to what Daniel said. Where's Daniel? <laughs> there he is. Maybe I did have it. Did I fall that far behind? Or what, did I, what happened here, Lisa? I don't know. But there's verse 8. Okay. Notice what Daniel said, and, and when we read this portion on Daniel, keep in mind that this is who Jesus is claiming to be, okay? In Daniel seven thirteen, I kept looking in the night vision. So Daniel has a vision, and he calls it the night visions. It's some kind of a, whether it was a dream or just a vision that he sees, it's one or the other. I'm going to call it a vision because it says night visions. Behold, with the clouds of heaven... One like the Son of Man. This is the language that Jesus pulls in and, and uses of himself. At a later point in the scripture, he's going to ask his disciples, who do the people say that the Son of Man is? Well, some say that he's Elijah or the prophets. And he says, but who do you say that I am? Again, Jesus bringing without any qualms at all that he's recognizing and identifying himself as being the Son of Man. One like the Son of Man was coming, and he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given, and to him, this Son of Man, was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. 
His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Now, without getting too deep in the details because this isn't a sermon on Daniel 7. If you're interested, I preached through the book of Daniel. You can go and find that message on Daniel 7 there online and listen to it. But Jesus, the man attested by God with signs, miracles, wonders, he claimed to be none other than the Son of Man of Daniel chapter 7. He told them who he was. And whether or not they completely understood that claim or not is really irrelevant to the context. Jesus tells them and warns them, I've told you who I am, that I'm the son of man who the ancient of days establishes with an eternal kingdom that will never be destroyed. And all people will serve me. I have a glory, a dominion, and a kingdom that will never be destroyed. This is who I am. Jesus says to them, warns them actually, to not let others know who he was. And his claim that he's made is actually a claim of being, as it said there in verse 8, the Lord of what? The Lord of the Sabbath. What does that mean? Well, if you're the Lord of something, it means that you're, you have rule over it. And as we looked at then, Jesus was claiming to have rule over Sabbath. Well, when was Sabbath established? We went back to Genesis, and we saw that on the seventh day, God rested. And then he used that when he, to Moses. When Moses was establishing, he created a Sabbath day rest. Jesus is claiming to be God, one with God. Now, one of the unique aspects of Christianity is the doctrine of the Trinity, a doctrine that's very difficult for a lot of people to kind of get our minds wrapped around. One God in three persons. God in three persons. Blessed Trinity, right? We sing that song. And so this is who Jesus is claiming to be. And without a right and proper understanding of Jesus as God, you do not have a historic Christianity. You may have something other than that, but you do not have Christianity Christ is the only way, truth, and life. No man comes to the Father but through him. He claimed to be one with the Father. If you don't believe that he and God are one, you may claim to know him, but you don't know him, know him. And you will die in your sins apart from him. This is how serious this issue is. In John 10, Jesus more plainly stated it there, I and the Father are one. Again, Jesus claiming to be one with God. And he warns them not to tell people who I am. And notice why on this occasion, then how Matthew broadens out the extent of the application of God's compassion through the use of a quote from Isaiah 42. We see this in verses 18 down through verse 21. He says, Behold, my servant, whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him, and he shall proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel nor cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A battered reed he will not break off, and a smoldering wick he will not put out until he leads justice to victory. And in his name, the Gentiles will hope. Here in Isaiah 42, Matthew's use of Isaiah 42 is we, we see there, if you go back to Isaiah, it's the first of several of what we would refer to as the suffering servant passages that begin in 
Isaiah 42 and continue all the way through Isaiah chapter 53. And each one of those unique passages from Isaiah 42 to 53 that delineate on the suffering servant each tell of a unique aspect of what God's chosen servant will accomplish is when he arrives. And it's here that for the first time, it, it makes much of the fact that God's chosen servant in a unique way, and the very first of those suffering servant passages is that God is a God of the Gentiles also. Isn't that great? There was only uh, one Jewish brother here, converted Jewish brother here. The rest of us are Gentiles. Can't we say, thank you, Jesus. There was no plan B. Had the nation of Israel accepted him, he would have established the kingdom, no need for... There was no plan B. The plan has always been that my servant, whom I have chosen, my beloved, in whom my soul is well pleased, would be the very ones in whom the Gentiles will hope that's been the plan of God from before the foundation of the world. It lets us know that God's plan, his decree, has always been for the redemption of us Gentiles too. And there's a long history of Jewish history in the Bible that kind of seems like we have, we're to a certain degree excluded from the rich promises of God. But lo and behold, at just the right time, God sent forth his chosen one his servant, whom he had chosen, in whom he, the chosen one, would be a proclaimer of justice to us Gentiles. Now, this is what Isaiah, this was a word that God gave to Isaiah several hundreds of years before Jesus ever showed up on the scene. Had the nation of Israel rightly understood the heart of God, Hosea 6, 6 was a God who had a heart of compassion, and they read a passage in Isaiah 42, Perhaps they wouldn't have been so cruel towards those Gentile dogs and would have understood that God had a plan for them as well. I mean, they're both harsh to each other, but it's part of the fall, right? I mean, just in general, people are harsh with people because of the fall. Ethnicity lines fall where they will, and we still have that racism in our culture even down to this day. Shamefully so, because there's one race, there's one blood. We've all been made in the image and likeness of God, all people. There's variations within pigmentations as people have spread out over the earth and their placement and their time and their history. But when you go back to the beginning, you got Adam and Eve. And then God got really upset with all the sinful people on the earth, so he flooded the entire earth except Noah and his family. So then he starts over. So the, the issue of racism is not something that's new and exclusive. It's something that we see throughout the entirety of all the scriptures. But we see here in this passage in Isaiah, not only is Jesus the chosen servant, it's very, very clearly stated, God shows Isaiah, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased. How many times do we see in the New Testament this phrase, in whom I am well pleased, come from heaven with regard to Christ, his son? At the baptism, and where else? Mount of Transfiguration. Listen to him. This is my son whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. God's soul was well pleased to send Christ to do this. And notice we see also in verse 18, 
that God also did something here in this second portion right here. I think I've got this one seg segregated right here somewhere. Yeah, there's some passages I didn't show you. Uh, where is it at? Where is it at? Come on, 18, right here. I will put my spirit upon him. So not only was he the beloved chosen one of the Father, we see that he was also, in, in an essence, um, had the commissioning of the Holy Spirit. God's spirit was put upon him. Whenever Jesus was baptized, it says that uh, like a dove coming from heaven alighted on Christ. The spirit alighted on Christ. And one of the unique things that we know about Jesus in all of his three years of ministry, in all of the miraculous things that Jesus did, he did by means of the spirit of God that was upon him. He wasn't just Jesus and the Father and the Spirit were still up in heaven. The Spirit alighted on him and was with him, and the power of God through the Spirit of God was with Jesus to accomplish all the miracles that we, that we just saw him do. It says many followed him, and he healed them all. Jesus had the power of the Holy Spirit upon him in the outworking of his ministry. And not only that, Isaiah also predicted that Jesus would show up with a message from God for, for us Gentiles. And he, that chosen one, in whom he was well pleased, he shall proclaim justice to the Gentiles. Isn't that beautiful? So when Jesus showed up, hooves on the ground, and he started saying, like John the Baptist did at first, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He showed up and he proclaimed justice to the Gentiles. The preaching ministry of Jesus wasn't just exclusively for the nation of Israel, as some of my classic dispensational friends will cling to. They will say that the, the gospel that was preached in the gospels was a gospel that was preached for the nation of Israel. And since plan B kicked in, then the apostles had a gospel, and that gospel was preached for the church, the Gentiles. And again, well-intentioned, it's just bad hermeneutics. Isaiah said, God through Isaiah said, that when his precious chosen servant, the one whom he chose, his chosen servant, and whom he is well-pleased, and we know this is Jesus. He put his spirit upon him, and he had compassion for all that. When he shows up, he's gonna, he has a message for the Gentiles. The gospel message in the gospels that Jesus brings wasn't just exclusively for the Jews. Isaiah said it. He's going to proclaim justice to the Gentiles. Are you following me? Now, again, the rest of us, there was one. The rest of us are Gentiles. We should be thankful this morning. Thank you, God. Thank you that you sent Jesus to proclaim justice, the gospel message to us Gentiles as well. There in Genesis 12, 3, the Abrahamic covenant. I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse, and in you all, notice this, all the families of the earth. Now somehow, I don't know exactly how, somehow, the religious leaders of Israel understood all the families of the earth to mean just them. And I'm, I don't have an axe to grind against the nation of Israel. They're spiritual leaders in the same way they gave them bad information relative to the Sabbath day. They gave them bad information on how to interpret Torah as well. 
and they interpreted Torah to mean somehow that all the families of the earth were going to be blessed through this Abrahamic covenant to mean exclusively them. And somehow these same religious leaders over the course of time also misunderstood Daniel 7, 13, and 14 that said that all the people's nations and men of every language might serve him. Somehow they misunderstood that to mean only them. But yet the language of the text is very plain indeed. God's plan of redemption has always included the Gentiles, the nations. And this is why we know that Jesus' preaching ministry, again, his proclaiming that the kingdom of heaven is at hand was to the Jew first, but also it was a proclamation of justice to the Gentiles as well. Isn't that good? This is why I kind of refer to myself as a progressive dispensationalist. If you want more details on that, see Pastor Matt. He'll straighten you out. Um, in Matt, then in Matthew 12, 19, Isaiah shows how Jesus is going to do all of this. All of these things that Jesus is going to do in proclaiming this amazing message, he's going to do all this without manipulation, without scheming, he will not quarrel, nor cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. This word for quarrel here carries the idea of wrangling over words, quarreling, wrangling over words, or, or hassling people to do something they might otherwise choose not to do. Crying out has the idea of shouting loudly and excitedly. So with regard to Jesus' preaching, his proclaiming the good news, he didn't do it that way. He didn't try to use manipulation. He didn't try to coerce people into believing something that wasn't absolutely truth. When Jesus engaged people, he always appealed to them based on truth as discovered and written in God's word. Jesus spoke firmly. He spoke with precision. He spoke accurately with, uh, with urgency, but never with manipulation. As a matter of fact, to the contrary, Isaiah said of God's chosen servant that he will come with a message of great compassion, and that message will stand the test of time leading justice to victory. We see this in verse 20. As Matthew finishes, gets to the very end of this, his use of Isaiah 42, 1 through 4. And he says it like this, through analogy, a battered reed he will not break off, and a smoldering wick he will not put out until he leads justice to victory. Here Jesus uses two analogies, both with reference to people. In ancient time, reeds, and by the way, does everybody understand what a reed is? I thought about getting a picture. Like if you went down to the banks of the Sea of Galilee, there would be reeds that were growing around the, the embankment of the sea, these long green reeds. Does everybody kind of can you envision that? These reeds um, were, had many purposes back in New Testament times. Um, but once a reed was battered, meaning that it was maybe bruised, it had been bent. So if you went down to the embankment and you saw a, a reed that had been like already bent over, kind of broken in half, or it was bruised, it just wasn't very firm, it, had, it was a little bit flimsy, that kind of an idea, it was crushed. Um, that let them know that that reed was of no use anymore, and so they would just break that reed off and just kind of discard it. And then they would get to trying to find a reed that they could 
used for the purposes for which they were looking to use the reed. One such use of a reed was shepherds who would guard their sheep and their flock by night. They would take a reed, and they were very skillful when that reed was freshly plucked by the, by the body of water that it was growing from. It had a lot of moisture in it, and thus it was very pliable, and they would make these reeds into flute-like instruments. And these shepherds at night, while they were watching over their flock by night, they would play music off these reeds that they would make. And it was just something that they would do, and it was perhaps soothing for themselves, for the sheep. It just gave them something to do in their spare time. They didn't they didn't have Google search. They didn't have things like that. They had reeds that they played instruments, turned into instruments. That's what they did in their spare time, right? And um, um, where was I? Yeah. And so those flute-like instruments would eventually dry out, as anything would. It would get a crack in it, and instead of making music noise, it would just make an airish sound. So they would discard that, so they'd pull out another reed, and they occasionally made trips to get fresh reeds, okay? And so... This, these reeds, again, when, when battered, when um, bruised, they were completely of no use. And the smoldering wick, he, the chosen one of God, Jesus, he will not break off battered reeds. Now, we're going to get there to his application in a second, but he also, with a smoldering wick, will not put out. A smoldering wick is just simply... Um, you've seen this on many occasions. You've burned a candle in your house and you've burned it all the way to the end where there's no more wax left at the bottom and that wick just goes out. And when there's still perhaps maybe a little bit of that orange hue in the wick and the smoke is just kind of coming off of that wick, that's a smoldering wick. The purpose for which that wick was lit intentionally with the candle was to put light in the room. But now that the candle is gone, it's just a smoldering wick, it's of no use. It can't function for, what, for the purpose for which it was intended to function, put light in the room for the joy and the and enjoyment of people. But now it's just a smoldering wick. And so what's the use of a smoldering wick? There is no use of a smoldering wick other than to be put out discarded. And so Matthew, using some very contextually familiar things, says that when he, uh, the Son of Man, comes to have a ministry to Jewish people who were kind of likened unto battered reeds and smoldering wicks viewed to be of no value, those Gentile dogs that were on the outside of the community of faith, he's not going to break them off and discard them as if they were useless. He's not going to, like a smoldering wick, just put them out and discard them as if they were useless. That's not what God's chosen servant is going to do when he comes proclaiming a message of justice to the Gentiles. He's going to find people that are broken, Bruised, wounded, <clears throat> smoldering, <clears throat> smoldering, if you will. People's lives that have not a lot of meaning and purpose, and per perhaps from their own perspective, value. And Jesus is going to proclaim a message to them, a message of hope. And he's going to do that until he leads justice to victory. 
when the gospel message that he brings to this world, to the Jew first, yes, but also to the Gentiles, he's, that, that message is going to be preached through the church age all the way until he leads justice to victory. And that message is going to let all people know of every language and tribe of the entire earth that they can find meaning and purpose and value and worth in their Messiah, Jesus Christ. He's not going to discard you as being useless. He's going to pick you up and he's going to make you whole. And he's going to do that all the way into the time until justice leads to victory. And when does justice lead to victory? Well, we, knew, we know he's coming again, right, church? <laughs> he's coming again, and he's going to come this time as a conquering, victorious king on a white steed. The book of Revelation says that it's going to be a, a pretty awesome thing to behold. The first time he came with this amazing, compassionate message, hope in Christ. He's going to come at the end, and he's going to gather up those who found their hope in Christ. And he's going to take them to be where he's at, and he's going, to, um, he's going to bring justice then to victory. That will come. And notice how Matthew wraps this up from Isaiah 42. And in his name, the Gentiles will hope. Church, where's your hope today? Did Isaiah get it right? He sure did. How many years before Jesus showed up? Hundreds. I should know the exact number. He got it right. When Jesus showed up, he showed up for the Jew first, but also for the Gentile. So perhaps if you're here this morning and you haven't come underneath the Lordship of Christ, you haven't submitted your life to, here, to him, listen, I'm telling you, there is no hope apart from Christ. Anything that you think you can put your anchor in into this world is hopeless. It will leave you utterly empty every time. Only Christ can bring true hope. Come to him. He won't discard you. Perhaps there have been people in this world that have discarded you. You've maybe even discarded yourself. Romans 8, 1. There's therefore now no condemnation. Sometimes we beat ourselves up mercilessly because we're not perfect like Jesus was perfect. And the adversary runs with that in our minds and those flaming darts just perpetually try to steal, kill, and destroy the hope and joy that we are to have in Jesus. Don't let him do that to you this morning, church. If you're here this morning and you've yet to put your faith and hope in Jesus Christ, listen, that message was proclaimed through Isaiah the prophet some 650 years before Jesus ever even showed up on the scene. And Matthew here is making a big segue in his gospel, indicating that. We oftentimes say Matthew's gospel is to the Jew. Well, if that's the case, Matthew's gospel to these Jewish people is letting them know what? You misunderstood Sabbath regulations because you misunderstood the compassionate heart of your God. And you've also misunderstood that the compassionate heart of God is also for the Gentile as well. In him, Gentiles will hope. 